Amen. Beautiful singing this morning. I trust the Lord was very pleased with that. When we sing, as the apostle said in Ephesians 5.19, we're speaking ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to the Lord. You're singing to the Lord. And the Lord looks upon our hearts. And I feel like this morning the Lord was pleased. I trust so. This morning I'd like to go back to Acts 2.42. Last two Sundays we've been there. Acts 2 and 42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Two Sundays ago, we emphasized the part of that statement says that they continue in the apostles' doctrine. The last Sunday, we looked at the expression prayers. They continued steadfastly in prayer. And today, I'd like to look at the second part of that, where it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. I'm going to look at that word fellowship for a little bit this morning. Now, again, just to remind everybody, these early disciples, these are the very first disciples of the Lord's church. These disciples continued. That means they had begun, they had started, and now they're continuing, and they were continuing steadfastly. That should be uh, what each one of us desire to do. First Corinthians 15, 58, Paul said, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, in the work of the Lord. We have opposition from the world. We have opposition from our human nature and we have opposition from the devil himself. We have that daily, every single day. The devil never takes a day off. Do you notice that? The devil doesn't take any vacations, none, zero. He never takes a day off. The world never takes a day off. And I can assure you, your human nature never takes a day off. Have you ever had a day that you didn't have a conflict with it? A problem with it? You know you do. And you have a problem with this world, you should. And Satan is always around. So we have to be steadfast and unmovable if we're going to accomplish the things the Lord wants us to accomplish. Now, when you think of fellowship, I want you to think this morning uh, of a ship back in biblical days. It'd be much smaller than what you normally think of when you think about a ship. And I want you to think about men in that ship. And they all have oars, and they're sitting side by side from one end to the other. And they're using those oars together, and they're rowing. And they're rowing at the same time, in the same direction, so they can move from point A to point B in the quickest way they possibly can. The more they work together, the more they cooperate, then the more successful that they would be. That's fellas in a ship, okay? Fellowship, that's fellows in a ship. Now this word fellows is an interesting word in the scripture. Uh, we use it sometimes in everyday conversation. Maybe you walk up with a friend and to another friend and that friend knows you but doesn't know the friend that's with you and he may say, well, how are you doing, Joe? And who's this fella with you? Uh, that word just simply means there's another individual there, another person there. That word fellow has many definitions to it. It can mean friend, companion, co-worker, uh, somebody you have camaraderie with, an associate. Uh, it can have various meanings like that. Over in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 13, verse 7, 
We have this word fellow used, however, in a little different way than you'll find it anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's used a lot in the Old Testament in particular. You'll find uh, where uh, the Philistines, when David actually had joined himself with them, and they were going to go out and do battle against the Israelites, that the lords of the Philistines came to the king and said, this fellow, now the fellow they were talking about was David. They didn't call him a name, just call him this fellow. That is our midst right here. It says, we know, we remember when they sang the song that Saul slew his thousands, David his ten thousands. Uh, we're not comfortable, in other words, with him in our army, in our midst. And David might not have known it on that occasion, but David, the God of David, intervened and delivered David from going into warfare against his own people. That's another story, of course, within itself. But the point is, they refer to him as a fellow. But in Zechariah 13 and 7, the Lord speaks. He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow. He says, Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall scatter. He says, And then I will deal with my people. Now we notice here, it's the Lord who says, Awake, O sword. Now in the scripture, the sword symbolizes oftentimes ju judicial punishment or judgment. And that was going to happen. This is a verse that's a, a, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Awake, O sword, and smite my shepherd. Didn't say the shepherd, but my shepherd. This is God speaking. His son, Jesus Christ, was the father's shepherd that he would send here into this world. Awake, O sword, and smite my shepherd. I'm thankful that my shepherd, uh, the shepherd is referred to as my shepherd, came down from heaven to represent us and to take care of us as the good shepherd. You go to John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ declares that he's the good shepherd of the sheep. He says, the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He's not like the wolves, I mean, not like the, the hirelings that flee when the wolf cometh. He was willing to lay down his life, and of course we know that he did. As the good shepherd laid down his life, as the great shepherd, he arose from the dead. As the chief shepherd, he's in heaven now, and he'll be our returning shepherd when he comes at the end of time. So awake, O shepherd, awake and smite, my shepherd rather, and the man, that is my fellow, the word fellow there literally means associate and equal. All the various other definitions here would apply in a sense, but here we find that the father is saying, my fellow is my associate, he's my equal. This fellow consideration here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Awake, O sword, and smite my shepherd, and also the man that is my fellow. Now, the word for man here is different than the word for man in most places. The word for man here means warrior, means valiant. The man under consideration here is a valiant warrior. Think about that when you read Isaiah 63.1. It says, Behold, who is this that cometh up from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, traveling in the greatness of his strength, mighty to save? That's the Lord Jesus Christ that's under consideration. He came traveling in the greatness of his strength. I don't have any strength apart from the Lord. Romans chapter 5 and verses 5 and 6 tell us that when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. 
By nature, we're without strength, but Jesus Christ came mighty to save. It's a picture of a great, valiant warrior who came mighty to save. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who came traveling in the greatness of his strength. He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man who is my fellow. As man, the Lord Jesus Christ came as the son of man, and we see here his humanity. But the word fellow here would point us to his divinity. Again, he is a valiant man, a warrior, an associate, and equal with the Father. Now this is taught us in various places. Look in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, that's the second person of the Godhead, which is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's equality, is it not? The Word was God. In Philippians 2, 5 and 6, Paul said, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus Christ was equal with the Father. In John chapter 6, verses 38 and 39, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is the Father's will. All he hath given me, I shall lose nothing to raise up again at the last day. The will of the Son and the will of the Father are identical, one and the same. 1 John 5, 7. For the three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's equality, you see. So that's what he's saying. He says, awake, O sword, and against my sh shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow. That word fellow, once again, shows equality. The one that the Father sent here would come under the sword of judicial judgment, you might say, as he took our place on the cross and suffered in our room instead, taking our sins, his own body, to the tree of the cross. So that word fellow is used here different than it is in the other places. But at the same time, it carries the idea of equality. Now let's look over here just for a moment. In the book of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. Paul had visited this church at Galatia. And now he's writing this letter here. And he is con greatly concerned that after his visit with them, there were those who came among them that were trying to persuade them to go back under the law which the Apostle Paul had declared had been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And they were trying to pull him back. And so this is what this letter is all about, the letter of, to the Galatians. But in 2 and 9, you'll find where the Apostle Paul said he came there and found three men. He found James, he found Cephas, he found John, who appeared to be pillars in the church. Okay, pillars in the church. And he says, when they perceived of the grace of God that was given unto me, they gave unto me the right hand of fellowship. Fellowship. Now, when we close our service, we haven't done this in over a year, but we normally have a handshake. We call it a handshake of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship. And especially when someone joins the church. When they join, that, and especially after they're baptized, we have everybody come around and give them what we call the right hand of fellowship. So what does that mean? It means we're receiving you as an equal. 
You, you don't have to start at the bottom of the totem pole and work your way up. Because in the Lord's house, and the Lord's church, there are no big eyes and little U's in his house. Everybody's the same. The one that comes in the 11th hour, just as much as the one that came in the first hour, you see. There's equality. You're stretching forth your hand of friendship, companionship. Showing that you're being received in as part of the family, you see. And that's what the right hand of fellowship is. And so those, those three men, notice who those three men were. They were eminent among the apostles. There was James, who was the first pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And the human writer of the book of James. And there was Cephas. Of course, we know that was Peter. Peter wrote 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And he would become the apostle to the, uh, to the Jewish people, to the circumcision. And we know that Peter's life is in detail as much as anybody in the Bible. Uh, prior to the crucifixion of Christ and through the uh, first uh, 11, 12 chapters of the book of Acts. And then there's John, the apostle John, who wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He wrote the gospel of John, wrote the book of Revelation. These three men were extremely well known among the 12 apostles. Now among the apostles, there was equality. They were all apostles. They all had the same gifts from the standpoint they were able to heal and they were able to teach and to preach. But these three men, he says, they perceived that they were pillars of the church. And now added unto them was Paul and Barnabas. You talk about five outstanding individuals, five outstanding gifts that God gave there to the churches at Galatia. These were five of those kind of men. They were very eminent. They were well known and highly respected among the laborers and the, as far as the apostles was concerned. But the right hand of fellowship, I love that. You know that I really enjoy having a handshake. I miss it terribly. <laughs> I just love to shake your hand. I just love, uh, you know, when things are normal to, to, to get an embrace, to, you know, um, some people are a little hesitant about something like that, but if you're not careful, I'll just jerk you to me. I, I love to love, and I love to be loved in the right way, in the manner, in right manner. It's the right hand of fellowship. We're fellows in a ship. We have things in common, you see. Now, that word fellows used in other ways as well. You take uh, in the book of Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, the apostle Paul said, Greet Aristarchus. He says, My fellow prisoner. Fellow prisoner. Well, in Ephesians 4.1, the Apostle Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord. Paul was a literal prisoner on more than one occasion when he was, by, you know, read uh, the 16th chapter of Acts where he and Silas are in prison. That's when they are praying and singing at the midnight hour, you know, right? So he knew what being that kind of prisoner was all about. But Paul did not mind being a prisoner of the Lord. Now, if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can say that you are a, you are a prisoner of the Lord. Uh, the Lord takes care of his people. The Lord takes care of his children. To be a prisoner of the Lord is a blessing. So he says, greet Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner of the Lord. Somebody that Paul had something in common with here in more than one way, you see. So he is a fellow prisoner. In the book of uh, Philippians 2 and 25, Paul brings to our attention a man named Ephroditus. He says three things about him here. He calls him brother. 
Now, the Apostle Paul, as far as I know, had no family. He was never married, no matter what you might read in certain religious books about this, that, and the other. Paul was never married. All right, we just read about Paul, read about Paul himself. But he calls this man his brother. He was his brother from the standpoint that you're my brother and I'm your brother in Christ. It's a spiritual kinship. You've been born in the Spirit and I've been born in the Spirit of God. We're brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that nice? I love that. All right. And then companion in labor. He says he's my companion in laboring. And he says he's also a fellow soldier. Yeah, we have a fellow prisoner. We have a fellow soldier. Well, if you read the Bible regularly, and especially the New Testament, you're going to find that military terms are used all over the place. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, about verses 2, 3, and 4, the apostle writes to Timothy, and he tells Timothy to endure hardness as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. For no man entangles himself in the affairs of this life, that any, no man enters into a warfare and entangles himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be what? A soldier. A soldier. The book of Ephesians chapter 6 gives us the armor of God. But why do you wear armor? You wear armor because you're in a conflict. You're in a battle. And notice how the Lord gives us all that we stand in need of. It's very sufficient. He gives us the helmet of salvation to protect our minds. He gives us a breastplate of righteousness to protect our hearts. He gives the, the truth to put around our loins to protect us there. That's considered to be the, the, the strength of the body. And then he gives us the gospel of peace for our feet to be shod with, to protect our feet. And he gives us the sword of the spirit, which is the written word of God. And uh, he gives us a shield of faith. We might quench the fiery darts of the wicked. And I tell you, you got, if you got this armor on, you're protected. But it's not to be hung up in the closet. It's not just to be talked about, it's to be worn on a daily basis. Every single day we're to wear this armor and so doing, we'll protect our mind, we'll protect our hearts, we'll protect our uh, midsection of the body, we'll protect our feet. But we have the sword of the spirit, so it's armor for defense and armor for offense. And then above all, he says, with prayer and supplication of the spirit. How many times do we find the apostle writing to us in regards to what he's talking about? He ends up talking about prayer. And we mentioned that last Sunday. How that prayer ties it all together. How that prayer is that the energy of the whole matter, the energy of the whole thing, you see. So, Ephroditus was a brother to Paul. Uh, Ephroditus was a companion in labor with Paul. Nephroditus was a fellow soldier standing right along beside the Apostle Paul in their battles, you see. Then I look over in the book of 2 Thessalonians 3 and 2, and the Apostle Paul mentions Timothy. Now notice here about Timothy, three things about Timothy. He says, Timotheus, that's Timothy. He says, my brother. Now when you read 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul calls Timothy his son. But he's a son in the ministry. He was not his biological son. Paul was not married. Paul had no children. But he looked at Titus and Timothy as sons in the ministry. But here he calls Timothy a brother, just like he did Ephroditus. There was kinship there between Paul and Timothy. He said he was a minister of God and a fellow laborer. Now, he says he, he labors with me. We're, we're in the same ship. We're in the labor ship. <laughs> we're in the prisoner ship. 
Okay? Uh, fellow prisoners, fellow laborers. Now, laboring is something that uh, is very important in the Lord's house and the Lord's kingdom. Over in the ninth chapter we find of Matthew, we find where the Lord Jesus Christ saw great multitudes, and they were hungry and faint, and he had compassion on them, and he says, Truly I say unto you, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I pray ye therefore that the Lord of the harvest might send forth laborers into the vineyard. Now it's certainly true that ministers are seen as men who labor. But a church who only has a minister who labors and doesn't labor with him is not ever going to go very far. The minister of the gospel is to labor for the church, to help the church, but the church is to labor as well. We're to be laborers together, see, in the vineyard of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 5, 17, Paul said uh, concerning ministers, uh, he says, let him that laboreth in the word and doctrine, uh, be, he's counted worthy of double honor. That laboreth in what? In the word. Laboreth in the word and in doctrine. First Timothy chapter 3, Paul said, If any man desire the office of bishop, he desireth a good work. And Paul tells Timothy to study, show himself approved, a workman, need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now the preachers, uh, you know, preachers and lawyers, uh, I guess, Brother Larry, uh, are the, uh, you know, receive more jokes about them probably anybody else out here. You know, and of course, they're always telling me, well, you know, you, you only work one day of the week, Saturday. That's the only day of the week you work is, is Saturday, uh, excuse me, Sunday. I can't get my day straight. But anyway, it seemed like Saturday. I got up at four o'clock this morning. I was in North Carolina and I caught a plane at Raleigh Durham Airport at uh, 650 and flew, flew back home this morning. Karen and I have been over there visiting with our uh, family. And that, by the way, that's why she's not here this morning. She's, she stayed there because I got to go back later on in the week to preach on Friday and Saturday at Andrew Church over there, and we'll be flying back again next Sunday morning, getting up at 440 again, next at 420, next Sunday morning. So cut me a little slack this morning. <laughs> and so, anyway, we find Bible speaking about fellow prisoners and fellow laborers. And here, as a fellow laborer, we're all to be involved. Notice Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love and that you've ministered to the saints and doth minister and yet continue to minister. As you labor in the vineyard of the Lord, uh, the Lord sees it all and he's the one that's going to commend you by you know, putting his arm around you, spiritually speaking, so to speak. Uh, we're not to do for show. We're not to do to be recognized. But the Lord is not unrighteous to forget your what? Your labor of love. Our labor in the Lord's church and the kings a labor of love. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul says, For there remaineth a rest for the people of God. Therefore let us labor that we might enter into this rest. There's a wonderful rest for the soul for God's people in the church and in the kingdom. The more you labor in the church, the more rest that you'll have. The more rest that you will have. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, he said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you some, I'll give you rest. Notice he didn't say anything about giving life. If you're laboring and heavy laden, you've got life. <laughs> I'm talking about spiritual eternal life. But he says, come unto me all ye that labor 
Are you laboring? Are you heavy laden? Do you feel the weight of this world on your shoulders? Do you feel the weight of this world in which we're living? Does it bring sorrow to your heart? Does it bring uh, uh, anguish? Does it bring heaviness to your soul? To see the things we see and hear the things we hear and see the direction this world is going in and see the direction that our nation is going in, it ought to bring us down. Come unto me, though, he says, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now notice, the Lord said, there's a yoke here, and you come unto me, all you that labor in a heavy laden, I'll give you rest and take my yoke upon you. And I believe this to be a double yoke. Now we usually think about a yoke, we usually think about an oxen with a yoke around him, and he's pulling a heavy load, don't we? He's pulling a heavy load. He's pulling that plow through the soil. He's pulling that wagon that's been loaded down uh, at harvest time. He, he's a, a laborious animal. He, he moves slow, but he moves steady, and he carries a heavy load. But in this text here, I believe the Lord is saying, I'm going to be yoked up with you. Me and you are going to be pulling together. <laughs> Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, my yoke upon you, and learn of me, and you shall find rest unto your soul. Notice there's a given rest and a found rest. The given rest is when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that he's talking about here. See, this is totally contrary to what the Lord said in John 6, when he says, no man can come to me except the Father sent me, draw him. Uh, he's talking about a totally different thing. Here we're talking about somebody's already been drawn to the Lord by the power of God, and now he's to come to the Lord when he's laboring and heavy laden, and the Lord said, I'll give you rest. And learn of me, and you shall find rest to your soul. We're talking about soul rest here. And it's available to those who labor. Let us labor, therefore, again in the Hebrew letter, we might enter in to his rest. As Israel entered into the land of Canaan, it was a land known as a land of rest for them. So we're to labor. In John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ had been doing miracles, and, and the crowds kept getting larger and larger and larger, and multitudes began to follow him. And then the Lord fed the multitudes with the five loaves and the two fishes, if you remember that. Then how he took up 12 basketfuls. You know what the Lord said in John 6, 27? He says, you follow me not for the miracles, but for the loaves and for the bread. Or the fish and the loaves, rather. He says, labor not for the meat that perisheth, but rather for that which perisheth not, which is eternal. Now, if you're going to eat, you've got to work. You've got to labor. You've got, you got to have a job. So he's not telling that you're not to labor for that, but he says you need to get your priorities in order. <laughs> labor for the meat that perisheth not, which is eternal. The things in God's kingdom are not going to perish, you see. They're here for your using. So he says, labor not for the meat that perisheth. What I've given you will perish, but you labor something even greater than that, even more important than that. So we need to ask ourselves, I think, how much are we laboring for that? How much are we working for that? How much are we reading God's Word and studying God's Word? And where is, uh, on what, uh, uh, you know, uh, where our level of commitment to the house of God and being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ? So it was a fellow prisoners and fellow laborers. You go back to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, he says, in Greek, Aristarchus, he says, my fellow prisoner... Drop down one more verse and you'll find where he and two or three others he mentions are called fellow workers. Fellow workers. 
Well, we're to be involved. We're to be laboring. We're to be working, you see. And we're, as fellows, we're doing it together. We're yoked up together, aren't we? Now that yoke, by the way, while I'm on that, that yoke that the Lord speaks about there in Matthew chapter 11, that's an easy yoke to put on because you're yoked up with Christ. But notice another yoke in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, there's people who come down to Jerusalem and they're bringing forth a message, except you be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Circumcision was a big thing to the Jewish people. And they thought you had to keep the law of Moses. Certainly circumcision was one of those things you had to keep. But the apostle Peter says about verses 10 and 11 over here, he says, why put you this yoke upon our necks? Why put you this yoke upon our necks and upon the neck of the disciples that even our forefathers were not able to bear? He said, this is an unbearable yoke. Man cannot get to heaven, brother, by keeping the law. It would require total, absolute, total perfection. Not 99% perfection, 100% perfection. You can't labor long enough, hard enough, work long enough and hard enough. Turn your way into glory land. I'll tell you that now. Nobody will ever be in heaven based upon their own works. It's based upon the work of the Lord and Jesus Christ and him alone. He says, this yoke is, uh, we cannot bear this yoke. Our forefathers couldn't bear this yoke, but we believe we're saved by grace, even as they. I mean, you got people that believe people were saved in the Old Testament by keeping the law. Peter here says that's not true. They were saved by grace just like we are. Everybody be in glory one day, be there by the same, by the same reason, for the same reason, brother, because our sins were washed away in the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about from the very beginning of time to the end of time. Keeping the law had nothing to do with going to heaven. And church ordinances have nothing to do with going to heaven. But they are important. They honor God. They glorify Christ. They bring blessings into our lives in his church and in his kingdom, you see. But anyway, um, we find here is a hard yoke to bear. Galatians 5.1. Paul says uh, concerning those who thought circumcision was essential. He says, uh, he says, uh, therefore, uh, he's talk, he talks about the liberty uh, that you have in Christ versus the bondage that they had in trying to keep the law. Again, there were those trying to pull them back under the law and the apostle Paul was fearful that the grace of God that had been extended to them in, in gospel labors would be in vain because of that. Now over here in the book of Philippians chapter four, this church was so precious to the apostle Paul for different reasons. But in Philippians chapter four, you'll find where he starts it off now, this is kind of unusual because it sounds like this ought to be in Philippians chapter uh, 1, verse 1, where you might think this would be, but it's over here in Philippians 4 and 1. He said, I beseech you therefore, dear brethren, dearly beloved, my joy and my crown. He calls them dear brethren, he calls them his joy and his crown. He says, be steadfast, my beloved, my longed for, <laughs> As Paul is writing this, you can see where his heart's at. He, he said, I long for you. He says, you're my dearly beloved. You're my joy. You're my crown. That's how that chapter starts off. It seems like it ought to be in the first of the book, but it's right in the middle. Actually, toward, more toward the end. Then he mentions two sisters in that church by name. And he says, calls them a name and tells them to be of the same mind. It sounds like they were crossed with one another. 
Surely nothing like it ever happened. Uh, but it happened at least once. It happened right here in the church of Philippi. Here are two sisters who are not of the same mind about something. Paul doesn't give us the details. He just puts their names right there. So we read it years later and tells them to be of the same mind. And then verse three, very interesting. He said, now I beseech you, true yoke fellow. Talking about the yoke and talking about fellow here. And I beseech thee, true yoke fellow, help those women which labor with me. Uh, and he says, especially Clement, he gives begin to name some names. Now he doesn't tell us who the yoke fellow is. I beseech thee, true yoke fellow. This was a, uh, a yoke fellow that was a true yoke fellow. He wasn't a pretender. Who was this yoke fellow at the church of Philippi? Nobody knows. Oh, I've read all kind of speculation about it. Maybe it's the Philippian jailer, somebody said. <laughs> no, it wasn't the Philippian jailer. I believe he doesn't tell us his name because I believe everybody in the Lord's church ought to have the label of being a true yoke fellow. You know, from time to time, I've spoken to you about how people have labels. Like Jonah, you know what Jonah's label was? Oh, sleeper. I put that on a lot of people. But anyway, Jonah was an old sleeper. <laughs> Judas Iscariot was the betrayer. So forth and so on. Well, here's a label that'd be wonderful to wear. Here's a label be wonderful for somebody to say, yeah, that's a true yoke fellow. That brother right there, that sister right there is a true yoke fellow. Now, if I was going to say, uh, I want to meet with all the yoke fellows in this church at two o'clock, I wonder how many would show up. Would you get to thinking, well, I don't know if I want to show up or not. I'm not really sure if I qualify. I don't know if I really like that. I hope that you would, okay? It's like Ephesians chapter 1 when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He's, he says, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, if I, if I said I'm going to meet at 2 o'clock with the faithful in Bethel Church, who all would show up? I'd, I'd like to think everybody would show up. But he specifically identifies the people as being faithful in Christ Jesus. And here he specifically identifies somebody in that church or maybe everybody in that church as a true yoke fellow. And he says, you help those women which labor with me. He said there was women, and he names one, Clement. He says it labored with me. They, they helped the apostle Paul in many different ways, no doubt. Um, you know, with, with food and necessities and things of this nature, maybe a place to rest. Reminds me of the woman in 2 Kings chapter 4, that, cert, you know, that certain woman, uh, that great woman, there was a great woman rather, and her name's not given to us. But I love reading that story, how that great woman uh, from day to day or time to time uh, as Elijah, Elisha the prophet came by, they, they took time to visit one with another. They they talked with one another. And later on, she built a room on the house with the approval of her husband. They built a room on the house. And in that room, there was a table and there was chairs. And there was a candlestick and there was a bed. <laughs> Everything a person would need. And it was furnished so when Elisha came by there, he could actually spend the night. He could actually uh, uh, have a bed to sleep on. He could have a table to sit at. He could have a table to eat on. He could have a candlestick there to give light for him at nighttime. And I, somebody one time said, Brother Lawrence, what do you think all those things typify? 
You know, somebody, uh, some people think everything recorded in the Old Testament has a typical meaning to it. And here's what I told them. I said, I think that candle represents light. And I think that chair, <laughs> that bed represents rest. <laughs> and, I, and I believe, uh, uh, you know, that chair represents something to sit on. That table represents something where you put food on. That's all I see in it. But from that point of view, but I see love. I see compassion. I see somebody wanting to go a step further. Now somebody say, well, it seemed like to me it was enough that she took time just to talk to him when he came by. And no doubt she probably gave him an apple pie or something as he came by. Or pecan pie. She really liked him. Anyway, um, <laughs> she, I'm sure she done things like that. But it, it always reminds me of the story. I know you've heard me tell this. Some of you have, and some of you haven't. But many years ago, my older son David, who's 47, at this time he's about uh, he's about six or seven years old. And Brother Lonnie Mazingo Sr. had come over to attend the associational meeting. We had to get him to the airport, which was about a two-hour drive. And so my wife volunteered to take him. And on the way to the airport, Brother Lonnie kept asking, telling her, he said, I, I hate for you to do this. I know this is a lot of trouble. And she said, no trouble, Brother Lonnie, no trouble. A little bit later, he said it again. She said, I assure you, it is no trouble. The third time he said it, David raised up in the back seat and said, Mama, this is a lot of trouble. <laughs> so that's, that's the way some people view things like that. Being trouble and not just a little trouble, it's a whole lot of trouble. But to Karen, it was no trouble at all. She was happy to do it. She was delighted in doing it. It gave her pleasure to do it. That, that's the difference, my friends. Your attitude is the difference in all these things, is it not? Now, you got fellow laborers, you got fellow prisoners, you got fellow workers. And then we're talking about fellowship. Being in the ship, they disciples continued steadfastly in fellowship. One of the things I have missed so much the, this past year is the degree of fellowship uh, that we have enjoyed in times past. But because of this coronavirus and one thing or another, we've had to live our lives. We've been separated, just seeing each other minimum amount of time compared to how we have done it in years gone and past. And I miss that greatly. I miss it very much. These people continue steadfastly in fellowship. Now, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 3, 7, and 8, he says, Unto me, whom less than the least of all the saints is this grace given. He said, By the grace of God, he says, I have, I have a gift that God by his grace has given unto me. And he says, That I might declare unto the Gentiles their unsearchable riches of the Lord Jesus Christ and declare to him what is the fellowship of the mystery. That's kind of an interesting expression not to me. Fellowship of the mystery. That mystery is the gospel. The next verse says, For these things have been hid in God from the beginning of time. What you have today has not always been available to God's people. From the time of, Mo from the time of Adam to Moses, brother, there was just very little revelation of God to the human race. And then from Moses uh, coming along, writing the first five books of the Bible into Malachi. And the Old Testament is recorded, and God gave the ceremonial law, the moral law, and the uh, uh, civil law unto one nation. Not all nations, but one nation. And then the Lord Jesus Christ comes along and sets up his gospel church, and we have a complete Bible. But from the beginning of time, these things were hid, he said. They were not known, they were not revealed. 
to the natural man who's dead in trespassing sin, they're never revealed to him. He can never see it, never understand it. He's dead in trespasses and in sins. And once again, this past year in the past election proved one more time that there are one, at least one thing a dead man can do, and that's vote. He can certainly do that. It happens every single voting time. Somebody who's been dead for years registers to vote. I don't know how they do that, but they do. It was hid from them. It was hid from even the elect angels of God. Remember, Peter says, the elect angels have decided to look into these things which you know and understand and knew not. The Gentile world did not know it. A lot of times people just forget about all that. They don't think about that. The truth of the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ has been here since the days of our Savior and then, then on a limited basis because, uh, you know, lack of transportation, technology, and all these kind of things. I'm telling you, what you have today at your fingertips, you ought to thank God for every day that you live. I, I trust I do. Thank you, Lord, for this understanding. Thank you, Lord, that you've made me to understand that I belong to you based upon your sovereign grace. I belong to you based upon unconditional election. I belong to you in a covenant relationship. I belong to you by blood-bought redemption. I belong to you from the standpoint that you born me the Spirit of God when I wasn't looking for you, what didn't desire you whatsoever, and you came into my life and changed it all around. You think about them things? This is not the way it's always been. And even today it's hid to a great many people. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I thank you, Father, that you've hid these things from the wise and prudent and hath revealed it unto babes. If you really understand what salvation by the grace of God really means, it means it's all of God from beginning to end. It's all of God, my friends, from first to last. It's not a combination of what you've done and what God's done. It's all of the Lord. Everything about the Lord. That's why, it's, that's why we have security in Christ. He said, here's this fellowship of the mystery. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul thanked, thanked God for, for several things for the Philippian church. He said, I, I thank God daily for you. Never ceasing to pray for you. He said, I thank you for the fellowship in the gospel that we've had from the first day. He's going back to Acts chapter 16 when he went down to Philippi. Remember, he wanted to go to Asia and preach and the Spirit wouldn't let him. He wanted to go to Bithynia and preach and the Spirit forbid him not. And therefore, he just stayed right where he was at until he got, you know, a, a clear picture. And an angel, uh, excuse me, um, a man appeared in a vision. As this man appeared in a vision to him, he said, come over to Macedonia and help us. And the Bible says they then feeling surely the Lord was in the matter. They took a straight course and they went there to Macedonia. And when they got there after several days, he went out. And I covered some of this last week. They went out to the, the, the shore there where prayer was wont to be made. And there were sisters there, women there. And they met to pray. And one of them was a woman named Lydia. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart as she attended to the things that were spoken by Paul. And then she and her household were baptized. And then a little bit later, we find where the flipping jailer comes into the picture. I guess this is the man that appeared to him in the vision. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And oh, did Paul ever help them? 
Uh, Paul uh, ministered to them and Paul taught them and Paul preached unto them and let his heart to be opened to the Lord, my friends, received it all. And she was baptized, received the blessings of being baptized, her in the household. And the Philippian jailer, oh, we don't have half the time we need to talk about him. But anyway, the Philippian jailer, what a blessing the providence of God was in the Philippian jailer's life. Remember at midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and, and they're singing songs at midnight and God uh, shakes the prison doors, my friends, and the, and the doors open wide open of their own accord. But Paul and them didn't escape. They just stayed right there. And the keeper of the prison came and he realized that the doors were open. He thought everybody had escaped. And he drew his sword and was going to just slay himself and take his life. Because the penalty, my friends, in that day, if you were watching a prisoner and he escaped, your life was taken in his place. And Paul said, do thyself no harm. We're all here. That had to shock him. You mean the doors are open and you're in prison and you didn't walk out of here? You didn't run out of here? You didn't escape? No, we're right here. And the apostle preached the gospel to him. He and his household were baptized. You go to the end of this chapter, you're going to find where they wanted to get them out of there. And Paul said, no, they put us in here. They're going to come and take us out of here. And that's exactly what they did before they left Philippi. You find where they go into the house of Lydia. This, this, is, this is fellowship. I want, to, I want to close with a couple of scenes of fellowship here this morning. Last week, we, we closed out in, in the book of Acts chapter 20. I want to go to Acts chapter 21 just for a moment. In Acts chapter 21, we find where Paul and him had landed at a place called Tyre. We look at verse 4. For there the ship was unladen or burdened. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit, he should not go up to Jerusalem. And we had accomplished those days. We departed and went our way. And they all, notice this, these disciples, they all brought us on our way with wives and children. Notice how he puts that in there. Why did he put that in there? Because that's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be husbands and wives and children in the house of God. Entire families come to the house of God. We don't separate them out. We don't segregate them out. We want them all together right here together to sing together and pray together and hear the preaching of the gospel together. And so these disciples with their wives and their children brought them on their way. That just simply means whatever they stood in need of, they supplied it to them. If they needed food, they gave them food. If they needed clothes, they gave them clothes. Whatever it was. And they brought us on our way. I, I love that expression. Till we were out of the city and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed just like you did in the last of Acts chapter 20. We kneeled on the shore and prayed together and we had taken our leave one of another. We took ship and then they returned home again. Here's a, here's a departure. And we go to Acts chapter 28. After Acts 27, Paul and them had that shipwreck. And the Lord, as the Lord said, the ship be destroyed, but all the people on the ship would be delivered, and they were, and they were landed on an island. Look at verse one. And when they were escaped, when they, when they knew that the island was called Melita, and the barbarous people showed us no little kindness. The barbarous people showed no little kindness, which means they showed a tremendous amount of kindness. 
uh, to Paul and them, and they've never met them before. And the, most of these people are wicked people on that ship, prisoners. There's a few exceptions like Paul, but they showed no little kindness. They kindled a fire. They were wet. They were cold and received us every one because of the present rain and because of the cold. And then uh, I'm going to skip verses 3 through 6. It says, In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days uh, uh, courteously. You know, one of the things about the primitive Baptist, one of the things about the Lord's church, is that you can see somebody, meet somebody, for the very first time, you know, uh, from another state or whatever, and after you've been around them about 10 or 15 minutes, you know what they most of the time say? They say, well, you know, it just seemed like I've known you all my life. <laughs> it just seemed like I've known you all my life. Uh, that, that's a precious blessing to have that kind of rapport, to have that kind of bond, to have that kind of feeling that, uh, from one heart to another. And why is that? Because we're fellowshipping, my friends, in the ship that God gave us here, the ship of Zion. He lodged us three days courteously. I don't read about where he gave him a bill. Do you? <laughs> and it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. Can you visualize the scene? Can you imagine the scene here? All this healing going on? They were kind to Paul, and now Paul is doing what God has given him the ability to do. And there's a lot of people being healed. And then verse 10, it says, Who also honored us with many honors. And when we were departed, they laid with us such things as were necessary. Never met them before. Ship is destroyed. Here's 278 people on the shore you've never met. But somehow in the heart of these people, they extended their hand of fellowship, their hand of, of hospitality, their hand of compassion, their hand of love. They took care of them. They lodged them, gave them what they stood in need of. In, in our household, when I was growing up, my father and mother were very, very faithful, dedicated members of Andrew Primitive Baptist Church. My father was a deacon in the church there. Dad was a farmer. Dad would borrow money in the spring, make a crop, pay off the bill, turn around and borrow money again for another year. Never could get out of debt. Never could get over the hump. That's just the way farmers did. They'd borrow money to make their crop, sell the crop, hope and pray they made a, had a good enough crop to pay their debts. I remember Karen and I were trying to make it that way. I was trying to give as much time as I could to the ministry back then. And we, uh, we settled up in the fall. And she said, what we got left? <laughs> I said, very little. <laughs> and she just busted out crying. I won't ever forget it. <laughs> and she said, don't tell me you don't feel like crying too. <laughs> I said, well, honey, look at it this way. We made enough to pay our debts. And we just start over again. My dad 
would put money on the table each Sunday that was borrowed money. Borrowed money. Borrowed to make a crop. He didn't wait to the end of the year and see how the crop did and see if he'd have some money left over to put on the table. No, every Sunday he made his contribution with money he didn't borrow to make a crop with. When preachers would come and stay at our house, Dad would take the car down there and fill the car up with farm gas. Give him a full tank of gas. Borrowed money to pay that gas. My mother had the reputation of being the finest cook there was. <laughs> and I can tell you how many people she fed in her lifetime who came there and spent the night with us. Preachers, non-preachers, families. It's the best life, I, I tell you. They gave me the best life that you could give me. And I've tried, we try to do that with our children. And our children would get pretty upset with us if they, if they found out somebody got somebody they, that we could have had. We already had a house full. But they found out somebody else got, so well, we already had them, Dad. <laughs> I'm glad they felt that way. I'm glad they, they understood the benefit of them, the value of it, of sharing with God's people what God has blessed you with here. What's mine is yours and yours is mine from that point of view. What a wonderful, wonderful life. It was a hard life. Had just enough to make it, but we made it. But what we didn't, what we lacked in natural things, we were overly abundantly blessed in spiritual things. And the fellowship we had with the people of God from various parts of the country. We'd have associational meetings and there'd be somebody from Kentucky and somebody from Ohio and somebody from Georgia, somebody from Alabama and Mississippi. And they'd come and we'd take people home we'd never met before in our life. But by friends, they came all that way for a three-day meeting. You could trust them. <laughs> uh, you could trust them. These disciples continued steadfastly in fellowship. We're all fellows in a ship. Let's all row together. Let's get in sync. Let's get from point A to point B together. Being of one accord, one mind. Enjoy what God's given us here, regardless of what the world's doing out here. Thank you very much for your, your good attention here this morning.